welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? Uh, this is the lowest budget podcast available. No intro music, no ads for Patreon or any of those things. It's just me talking. So I'm going to get started with a new series today. It's called Jumanji, and this is part one. Uh, subtitle, The Saga of Mouse Finbar. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that movie in a bit. This is the 2017 Welcome to the Jungle movie. And, well, let's get started. Uh, I'm going to do something annoying. Or rather, I'm going to do something that I found annoying when I was fallen away from belief. And what I'm going to do won't be annoying to those who have faith, but it will be annoying to those who don't. And I'm going to take a non-Christian movie and talk about it in terms of Christian redemption and rebirth. So that's the annoying thing I'm going to do. And as I said, this won't irritate everyone, only some. Those in the choir, they won't mind, but those standing out on the sidewalk outside of the church will find it irritating. And I'll explain why. So while I was cavorting in the fields of unbelief after falling away from faith, if I heard anyone interpret a movie as a Christian film or explain how a character was a type, quote, of, of a Jesus figure, I would cringe. And during that time, I felt that the Christians encroached on pop culture by twisting characters and plots into parallels that didn't actually exist. I felt that the Christians were desperately trying to remain relevant in a culture that had moved on. And furthermore, I felt that the pop culture should not be interfered with in this way. And now I see the irony in this reaction. Uh, when I believed I had no religion, I was offended that the art and film of secular culture was being somehow attacked by religion. Um, so what would happen is every hit movie that came out would soon result in some Christian, quote, zealot, interpreting the story as a suffering and redemption plot that explained why we needed a savior somehow. Um, one thing when I use the word zealot just there, I always think it's interesting how we, we only use that word in terms of uh, religious people, but we, we reserve that term for those people when they observe their actual beliefs. Uh, we never call secular people zealots, even though they follow their set of beliefs openly and, and just like I was explaining, would, would browbeat others or get angry or offended um, by others who didn't follow that, that secular worldview. So that, that's kind of a topic I want to go into in future episodes, but um, I was actually having a kind of ze zealous feeling about secular movies and culture when I felt like religion was encroaching upon it. So there's zealots in all camps, really. It's just that we only use the term in one area. Um, so in particular, I recall this interpretation of movies uh, bothering me with one, in, with one um, The Matrix. It was The Matrix that came out. It was a smash hit, you know, sci-fi thriller story. And as soon as that movie came out, Christians also watched the movie and loved it. And articles about the parallels between Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, and, and Christ emerged. And the Christians seized upon it, like borrowing the movie's success for use in evangelizing to sci-fi fans entering the culture there. Um, so that irritated me a great deal uh, because I really liked the movie. I thought it was uh, a great sci-fi film. And... But mostly it really irritated me because the parallels were quite obvious and I didn't want to admit it. Um, and I'm not going to go too far into The Matrix because, of course, this whole episode series is called Jumanji. But in The Matrix, let's just look at the high points without going too far. 
um, first of all, the name Neo is a scrambling of the word one, as in like the one. Um, Neo is actually the savior of this world, of the world in the movie. His sidekick girlfriend is named Trinity. The place they're trying to get to is called Zion. The ship is named Nebuchadnezzar. Um, so that's just some of the names, but you also have the whole plot and there's a small band of believers, this like little group, this, um, the remnant kind of thing that's trying to fight for freedom. There's a betrayal by one of them in the group who betrays Neo. Uh, there's an evil force keeping them sort of, uh, the foot on their, on their neck kind of thing. Uh, there's de demonic agents that can appear and disappear anywhere they want. There's, and there's even a death of Neo as he gets shot and then he is resurrected and he stops all the bullets in the future that are coming at him and just flexes and like can do whatever he wants then. So there's, there's clearly a death and resurrection story in the matrix. And there are so many other biblical refer references that it doesn't take a genius or even a stretch of the brain muscle to map the movie, the matrix to Jesus's life, death and resurrection. It's actually, um, it, it matches up really well. So my irritation at that comparison didn't really make sense. I just didn't like that it worked so well. Um, and what, so what's happened is it, with that movie and many others is of course, Christian writers have always looked for signs of Christ in works of art and they will always do so just as atheist and humanist and scientist and communist writers will try to do the same for their worldview. For every author that supports Christianity, there is another trying to tear it down. And, you know, all is fair in love and war, uh, but also in ideology and propaganda, as every side has its defenders that, and they will cross lines of decency and employ every logical fallacy and stoke fears like a furnace. Um, and not every debate or, or interpretation or argument is as charitable and honest as, say, um, there's, there's a debate out there with Jimmy Aiken versus Bart Ehrman. So it's like a Catholic apologist versus an atheist, um, which is a great debate because they're both respectful, um, make great points. And, you know, and I could, there's not this antagonism. So what we, that's what we really want anyway, is where we get to see the best defenders sparring and kind of kindness and putting forth their best argument. So you know, when I'm, if I'm doing something like this with, uh, Jumanji, I'm not trying to steal it, uh, <laughs> for one side or the other, or people who are interpreting the matrix. It's just kind of what we're going to do with the worldview that we have. So that's kind of the game too. That, that is what people do. You can see it with how radically different interpretations of the news can be shown on two different websites where someone will, um, have a completely negative view on something and another, another news site or, or talking head will have a very positive spin on it. So, so what I'm trying to do is, as I'm going to, I'm watching the movie Jumanji and having these realizations about what's happening in this movie. And I want to just talk about that. So, um, like I said, this may bother some people and, and others it may not, but let's get started. Um, so I'm going to do a three episode series on this. And this is the 2017 Jumanji version. And the character I'm really focusing on is Mouse Finbar, if you've seen it. Um, and somehow I'm going to tie that with his story over to Moses and Nicodemus. 
two, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. So I hope no one is too annoyed yet because um, I have a long ways to go and I'm just going to get started now. All right, so in the movie Jumanji, four high school kids of different cliques are magically brought into a video game where they must survive by collaboration to escape or to beat the game. So this is where Jumanji in the 2017 version is where the Breakfast Club meets the Hunger Games. And in fact, it's worth pausing here to mention that if you want to write a hit book or movie, you might do well to combine several prior hits in a new way, but you must use high school kids age, uh, that age group, or no one will probably buy it or read it. It's um, the smash hits seem to be with that age group. And Jumanji did a really nice job of this. And as did the Hunger Games before it, which the Hunger Games to me seemed to be a remix of a short story called The Most Dangerous Game and The Lottery by, I think, Shirley Jackson. So I don't remember who wrote The Most Dangerous Game, but that was another great like combination. You can see these plots of other stories, ideas of other stories being merged or re reformed into something new for the age or the era that you're living in. So high school age kids make more interesting characters probably than middle aged men and women because everyone has their own coming of age story and we're all a lot many are looking backward at that story. Um, whereas not everyone has a midlife crisis story yet and it's not as interesting to people who actually will go to movies. Um, so anyway, I'm going to focus on Kevin Hart's character. And he's uh, in, in the real world, Kevin Hart's character is played by the actor. Uh, I'm sorry, in the, in the high school world, it's Sir Darius Blaine. And in the, in the video game, it's Kevin Hart. So these are two very different sized guys and they're both good actors. So in the video game, Kevin Hart's character, Mouse, his name is Mouse. He's upset to learn that strength is his weakness. Um, so this is a funny thing because, um, it's, this comment is just tossed off as a one-liner, like a comic one-liner in the movie, a throwaway. Uh, but I would like, to, I'd, I'd like to suggest that this is what the whole movie is about. Strength is his weakness. And he, he's learning that in the game. So Kevin Hart's character in the video game is the opposite of his real world self. In the real world, this, uh, the actor, Sir Darius Blaine, he plays this guy named Anthony Fridge. Johnson. So his nickname is like refrigerator, big, strong, like William the Refrigerator Perry on the Chicago Bears in 1986 or 85. Um, and he's a high school football stud. Uh, Fridge is handsome. He's got youth. He's got looks. And most of all, he is strong. Yeah, even his name and nickname sound powerful. Anthony Fridge Johnson. It sounds like, like a president or something. Um, and he only selects his video game character because he misread the nickname as Moose, only to learn in the actual name of the character is Franklin Mouse Finbar. And Franklin Finbar is doesn't sound as strong as Anthony Johnson. So right there, even in the name, um, Anthony Fridge Johnson versus Franklin Mouse Finbar, there's a difference between strength and weakness. Um, the reason he chose that character, the pixelated TV screen made the word difficult to read, causing him to misread. Uh, mouse as moose and moose to him sounded cool mouse obviously wouldn't so once inside the game he's in disbelief upon discovering his character's skills and weapons and one of his one of his weaknesses is strength and kevin hart says strength is my weakness and he's hey hey can i quick question how, how is strength my weakness 
Can somebody explain that to me? And the whole movie goes on to explain that to Fridge so that when, when he returns to the world, he understands really well why strength is his weakness better than he ever dreamed. He's changed. He's not the same person. It's like he has been reborn. And we've heard that story before. We know that story of the rebirth kind of thing. Um, and this is what the movie is about. The movie is explaining this to all of us. So while we laugh at Kevin Hart's timing and his way of telling jokes, because he's very good at it, I, I like the way he delivers lines. Um, the message of how strength can be your greatest weakness is being broadcast and uh, decoded to us through this body humor of Kevin Hart versus Sir Darius Blaine, these two actors who are different size and shape. So strength is his weakness. Well, why is that? Well, because in the Fridge character, we see a high school life where he uses his strength as a hammer to get what he wants, to have his way. He has a weakling, one of his former friends, do his homework for him, and that character is going through his own thing in the movie as well. Um, Fridge is kind of above the crowd because of his athletic prowess. He's the, cool, he's the coolest kid in school. Um, all four characters in the movie have something similar happening, but Fridge is kind of my focus here, um, even though I can relate to any of them, really. There, there's something similar and interesting happening to each. Uh, the story is a process of purgation, really, of these high schoolers' flawed thinking or way of life. They're learning, they're getting self-knowledge through humility. So Jumanji is a story about re recognizing our weaknesses and coming to live with them, to embrace our inadequacies, to be at peace with our flaws without celebrating our flaws or, or going into despair over them either. Um, in religious terms, we would call this um, finding out sin. I mean, we'd learn what the, what sin is. So yes, we're already going there. We're already going there. Um, this movie is explaining to us why we need redemption, why we need salvation outside of ourselves. And so I'm sorry I had to go there to the S word, sin. But if you've listened to any of the series, you know the S word is going to come up pretty much every time. And we just don't like the word sin today because um, it doesn't sound good. We want to um, kind of bury that or sweep it under the rug. But whatever euphemism is used, the best word to describe our weaknesses and flaws is sin. And why is that? Well, because these weaknesses all drive the behavior of us, like the high school students, to do things that we don't want to do. In, in the movie, they are all hiding behind some smokescreen to tell themselves in the world that they have no weakness. None are being honest and open. None want to be exposed. And it's these weaknesses that bring all of them to after-school detention, which is a metaphor for how we put ourselves in our own prisons through our own identity lies. We choose to live in a hell because of what we cannot give up or refuse to admit. And Jumanji is similar to Dante's experience in the Inferno. Um, I, I, I thought about that after I watched the movies. There's some, there's some element of Dante's Inferno in Jumanji. But, and the reason why is that the characters must go all the way down, all the way to the bottom of the self-knowledge in order to get to the mountain. And there literally is a mountain at the end. But um, they cannot discover their weakness, their flaw, their fig leaf unless they experience humiliation and learn that what they have been gripping so tightly in the high school world is just a handle attached to nothing. So they're just, 
they're clinging to something that doesn't really have any support. Finally, um, now I'll get to the Jesus part because obviously I've been leading up to it for a little bit here. So Jumanji and Jesus, we've arrived. There are two scenes that I'm going to tie together where the question of how is strength my weakness, or you could say how is weakness my strength, but how that gets answered. And the first one is with Moses in the desert. And the second is with Jesus and Nicodemus. So in this clandestine meeting, we'll talk about Nicodemus and Jesus first. They have this, this secret meeting at night because Nicodemus being a Pharisee doesn't really want to openly embrace Jesus's teaching, but he's fascinated. So they have this night meeting that's kind of secret. And in that meeting, Jesus explains what he is here on earth to accomplish. This is the conversation which surrounds the famous verse known as John 3.16. And that's perhaps the only Bible verse that many American football fans have memorized or at least are aware of by chapter and verse. It's kind of the one verse everybody says or knows about. Keith Urban, uh, the country singer, also has a song quoting this verse. His song is titled John Cougar, John Deere, John 3.16. So it's the kind, this is the kind of Bible verse that both cafeteria Christians and diehard biblical scholars can all chat about together. It's good common ground. And the Moses story I, I want to bring up is less well known because it's in the book of Numbers, which no one wants to read. Um, that and Leviticus are both extremely difficult and kind of boring. But it goes um, directly with this conversation with Nicodemus. So the Moses story in the book of Numbers and this, this conversation with Nicodemus have this line that ties them together. And I'm going to tie that to Jumanji. But um, in this conversation with Nicodemus, in this night meeting, um, Jesus drops a reference to the scene from the Old Testament book of Numbers and this Moses story. And the story is one where the people of Israel have rejected God. They're in the desert. Um, they're, you know, and, and God has sent these fiery snakes to bite them as a punishment. So we're off to a good plot right away with this, uh, with the Old Testament story, because we have uh, whining, complaining uh, Israelites, which is happening over and over in the desert, of course, and their rejection, turning away from God. There's this anger, there's conflict, uh, betrayal, and then there's uh, writhing pain because these snakes uh, appear and start biting the people. And the Israelites in the desert have similarities to the video game Exiles in Jumanji. But let's go back. So uh, I'll talk more about the snakes biting the Israelites in the desert. But let's go back to Nicodemus. You know, he's one of these, uh, he's a well-read Pharisee. So he knows the story. Um, that's, Jesus just has to mention this snake bite scene. And Nicodemus knows exactly what the reference is about. Um, but, but we need to go into it a bit more since it's not as well known today. Like I said, who reads the book of Numbers for fun? Um, the snake biting story in Numbers has everything that makes for a good HBO series, but it's much better because all of this happens in about five to 10 sentences. Um, also, there are only three characters, so we don't have to waste 20 hours of our lives getting through a three hour or three year slow burning series that could have been just like one episode. Um, I think that's what I like about the Bible more and more as I read and reread it. Uh, so much is said in, in terse, short verses because the ancient sacred writers didn't have endless paper or scrolling screens to waste words on. Um, they had to be concise, unlike me. 
and as they as the mantra goes vigorous writing is concise i always try to remember that and then i completely violate that rule every time as i long-windedly write these things out and and read them so uh, but in their suffering, the, the bitten people, the, the people bitten by the snakes, they ask Moses for help. The snake bites are killing them. And Moses is instructed then by God, because he goes, he wants to help them. He, he goes and he, God tells him to put a bronze statue of a fiery serpent onto a pole. And the pole is to be lifted up for all to see. And those who look upon the statue will live. So this is a bizarre story. Um, now, a pole in ancient times had to be made of wood since they didn't have steel or aluminum. So, yes, it's a piece of wood, this pole, um, like the cross. Um, but I'm not going to go there. Uh, I'm just going to leave that part alone for now. Moving, I'm going to move on from that. So the story is in order to heal these people, um, he has to lift a bronze serpent on a wood pole. So this is really strange. It's really strange, um, and it feels like an idol of some kind because you have a statue of a bronze serpent being lifted up on a pole that everyone has to look up to. Um, the people will look to the statue. It's a statue of a snake, and then they're, they're healed. So we're all quite familiar with what snakes tend to represent in the Bible. A serpent is the evil one in the Garden of Eden, um, although I've read a, that a better translation might be the shiny one in the Garden of Eden instead of serpent. But in any case, the snake tends to indicate um, evil, something bad, something that we shouldn't be doing, something tempting. You know, um, whatever animal talked to Eve, the best representation of it seems to be a snake or a serpent. Um, but shiny one gets the same message across for me anyway. And now Moses is telling people, this is the strangest part, to look at a snake to be healed because it was the snake that talked her into eating the apple, um, which caused the fall. But now they're saying, no, go look at this bronze snake to be healed. What? You know, it's confusing. It's very confusing. But that, so that scene in the book of Numbers is, it was always was very confusing to me. But when you read it along with the conversation of Nicodemus and Jesus in John chapter three, I can start to understand the layers of meaning in both of these stories a little bit. And I'll probably spend far too long, as usual, linking Jumanji to Nicodemus to Moses. But here we are, and now I have to keep going. So first, what, what actually is happening in the desert with Moses and these fiery serpents? Uh, the fiery serpents bite and kill many of the Israelites in the desert who were complaining about God. And, were, and they were wondering, once again, why Moses brought them out of desert, out into the desert in the first place. Uh, this complaint is like um, what we'd call the light motif of the Old Testament. It's like a background song on a long movie. If you watch Lord of the Rings or Dances with Wolves or Saving Private Ryan or any epic kind of movie, there's, this, there's like a little song that always plays in the back and it's, it's a catchy tune and they'll play it in different ways. That's kind of what happens with the Israelites in the desert. They're always turning away from God and then maybe turning back after something good or bad happens. And that's what we do in our lives too. So it's the people, uh, even as nations, that's what we do. Um, it's so you can kind of hear this, this, this complaint of why God and why Moses, why did, why didn't we just stay in Egypt and eat and drink and remain slaves? You know, there's, it was better before when we were just 
happy slaves. You know, there's an Aesop's fable about the wolf and the dog and um, where the, the dog is explaining to the wolf how his life is so comfortable and wonderful. And the wolf says, that sounds really good, but why is there no fur on your neck? And the, the dog says, well, that's where my collar goes. And uh, the master doesn't let me off the, the collar or off the leash. And the wolf says, no, thanks. I'll live in the wild. I'd rather be hungry and free than a comfortable slave. So <clears throat> you see this in um, the same kind of thing with the Israelites, like that fable. So what, why do they do this? Well, the people forget quickly, like they always do, like we do, because the draw of comfort and ease makes them angry at Moses or angry at God. And whenever any difficulty arises, they, they reject God and they blame God for their troubles. However, some of the people appeal to Moses for help because these snake bites are killing them. They got nowhere else to turn. So that's, that's what um, the experience we have um, a lot of times is that we only will turn back to God once we are painted ourselves into a corner and we're stuck. Um, when it's really bad, that's when we're like, okay, I can't, now I suddenly can't fix this on my own. There's something beyond me, something higher, higher power, whatever. Um, so, but they do appeal to Moses in an important way. And God shows mercy to them and tells Moses to construct the serpent out of bronze and raise it up on a pole. And those who were bitten by snakes are to look up at this pole to be healed. And of course, I say, what? Uh, come again? It's one of the strangest stories to me. Um, and it was one of those bizarre stories that kind of eroded my faith in a way, because in about two paragraphs, this story seems to toss out a lot of magical, confusing, weird, and conflicting messages. It seemed like as stable as like Uranium-239, um, where it'd just be throwing out gamma rays or something all over the place. I didn't know what to make. I didn't know how to make sense of this bronze serpent story. And so this serpent on pole is often depicted in, in art as a cross with a snake draped over it. And this could make sense uh, to hold this bronze serpent on a pole. If it was just set on a straight pole, it would need a kind of crossbar to hold it in place or obviously it would just fall to the ground. However, it's not really clear because the text in Numbers says to set this serpent on a pole. Set it on a pole. That's the exact wording in the, I'm using um, uh, the Revised Standard Version it, translation. Uh, this, could this could mean literally a long stick that the serpent is wrapped tightly around, but it could also mean a cross shape in order to hang that on there. So obviously in my bias, I would prefer to think of this image as a cross with the serpent hung upon it, but I'm not sure that the Book of Numbers says that. In any case, I don't think it matters because the meaning of what the story is about dovetails with what Jesus talks about with Nicodemus. And this is what's important for why I'm, I'm talking about this sort of rebirth thing in Jumanji. The shape of the pole is all speculation and not necessary to dwell on. And this is a common danger for me to start interpreting things when I have no language background and not enough biblical knowledge. Sometimes I can get drawn into symbols more than I should because digging into the religious truth is where the eureka moment usually happens. These discoveries of meaning in the text um, uh, it's, are more important than certain details, I would say. Uh, I enjoy the allegory and the historical and the literal readings because all are necessary to read the Bible. But to me, those often those are arrows and clues um, to the timeless religious truths that it's teaching. And perhaps most importantly, as the pointers to Jesus and our, our ultimate need for a savior outside of ourselves.
Um, when, the, when the Israelites are bitten by the poisonous snakes, they suffer. Many of them, uh, in pain, they cry out for help. The venom is in them. It's causing fever, swelling, or some kind of medical emergency. So they're stuck in a kind of hell that has no escape and no cure. The snakes were sent as a punishment from God, which modern people always loathe to read because it seems like the petty punishing God um, and not the merciful magnanimous God. What I love about these stories is the movement along the slider bar of justice and mercy where we can see both in play. And we want the God who tells us it's, we want the one who says um, it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. And of course we do. Who doesn't want that? I remember eating uh, like a, a freezy pop as a kid uh, before asking if I could have one, you know, or I'd have a half eaten cookie in my hand and stand near a hall corner and ask, and then ask if I could have a cookie when I've already eaten half of it. Um, you, you hide the cookie behind, I'd hide it behind my back like I had my fingers crossed. Uh, and plus, I was going to eat the rest of the cookie regardless of whether or not I had permission. So that's that whole easier to get forgiveness than permission. Um, however, for the situation, however that came to be for the Israelites, uh, there is suffering happening and they are desperate for relief. So this is not like eating a cookie. This is like fighting for your life kind of uh, desperation. So let's just focus on that. There's pain, there is suffering. Um, and that is, this is just like the world that we live in. So we all, everyone has something, some affliction, no matter who it is. And it's important to remember that with every single person you meet, because everyone is struggling with something. Um, everyone is searching for something. And even those who may have found the answer are still, still have struggles. So so we can relate to this pain of these Israelites in the desert, even if ours did not come from a snake bite. Uh, we're in a situation of suffering and pain. That's the, we all experience this. We feel it. We wish things were otherwise. There's, there's mental pain. There's worry and anxiety. And then there's physical pain. Um, there's, there's enduring things we don't want to. Um, some pain is more acute. Some is more chronic. But we all have it in one form or another. And the question is, what do we do about it? So it's not, the, it's not the idea that you're going to escape that in life. Everyone is going to experience it. So what are you going to do about it? What can you do about it? There is no escape. There's no free pass. And there's pain enough for all to go around. We know that. This is probably the number one thing that drives people away from uh, belief in a loving God because of pain and suffering. I think it is the number one thing. It's so hard to explain. Um, and this is what the characters in Jumanji face. This is what they have to realize very quickly because as soon as they're in the game, the game begins to eat them and kill them and they can't escape and they can't hide behind their muscles anymore or their phones or their education or their uniqueness. They can't hide at all. And so they, and they can't do nothing either. To do nothing is to die. Uh, they will be overtaken by various things that will um, come and get them or mosquitoes or, or um, hippos or whatever. There's just a million ways to get um, killed in Jumanji. So they, uh, they first learn what they learn right away is that their instinct for survival is strong. And that's sometimes asleep in us, I think, because we are comfortable, kind of like the Israelites in Egypt. It's like, can't we just stay comfortable and, and hang out here and be slaves and 
Okay, so, of course, this problem of pain is the number one argument against believing in the loving God, as I mentioned. Um, and it's the same today as when the Israelites were bitten in the desert by the fiery snakes. And this has not changed. Uh, suffering makes us question a loving creator God as, as much today as it did 3,000 years ago when this was written in the Old Testament. So what happens with the snakes then? What happens with the snakes? The snakes bite the people. They're suffering. The people go to Moses. They ask for help. What's important to realize is how they ask for help. So they say, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord. They, they come in this humble way. They're saying, we turned away, we spoke against the Lord. In other words, they ask with humility. So recognizing their error um, is the most important step here. The suffering in the desert has shown their weakness in faith for God. Uh, they've, they've lost it. They've turned away very quickly. And so that is their first weakness. But the snakes have given them far more pain and renders them desperate. Uh, they are weaker than they ever realized. And when, uh, when they were in comfort, uh, they were able to be bold and bossy. And you, you do, you feel strong and you don't feel the need for God. You become less humble when you're feeling strong. They rejected God when they felt strong. And that's what we do. When we have success, we congratulate ourselves on our good deeds and skills. And when there is some discomfort, we lose patience and blame God. But when the real pain begins, the real struggle, we realize how small and helpless we are. So when the surgery fails, uh, we need help beyond human hands. When the plane is about to crash, we need a savior. When our best laid plans fall to pieces, we realize that our former struggles were like mosquito bites compared to the deadly snake venom. So what seemed difficult before begins to appear minor in hindsight. And the hardships in the desert for the Israelites were discomforts. The snake bites are death. There's a huge difference between something that is um, uncomfortable and something that is killing you. Uh, we reject God when we feel strong enough to carry on by ourselves, but we run to God when we have nowhere else to turn. In the desert, it is the perceived strength that causes the Israelites to reject God. But oddly enough, it is the awareness of their weakness that draws them to the truth, to the light. Knowledge of our weakness can become our greatest strength. And unfortunately, suffering is sometimes the only way to become alerted to the illusion of strength. You see this quite often with people at, um, in addiction and recovery meetings where they realize there was a weakness that they had where they could handle many, many other things in life, but not this one thing. And that was the weakness that was destroying them. And you see that recognizing and learning the weakness becomes a powerful thing for their life. Uh, all of the characters in Jumanji must become open and aware of their own shortcomings, which they often see as their strengths. They must shed the idea of personal salvation in the video game. Um, they have to rid themselves of this illusory faith in pure individualism. Uh, I would go so far as to say the movie kind of dives into the old problem of a, an old heresy called Pelagianism because what the characters learn in the game is that they were, they were actually hiding in the real world trying to save themselves. They believed that their imagined comfort was protecting them, but it was really a kind of prison. They thought their strengths were guarding them, but they were actually shackling them. So what they valued in the real world of high school was perfectly 
useless in the video game. They learn that they cannot save themselves. They're suffering. Um, so what they do learn is that they are suffering in the game, but they are not suffering alone. So they are together. Each person finds that his worldly strength is suddenly his biggest weakness, and it's of no avail to him. And this is what happens to the Israelites who are bitten by the snakes in the desert. They cannot save themselves from suffering, and no one can do that. So how, how can they be saved in the, in the movie? And let's talk about the movie. Well, first, they have to believe the game is real. And that's one of the first things that happens in uh, the movie where I think Jack Black gets eaten right away and they realize that this is not just some field trip. This is something that's going to kill them, like, like the snake bites. They have, to come, they have to have a faith that this is life and death at stake. And it's fear that, that uh, gets them moving, let's say. So they have to realize that the game doesn't require registration and fees. No, this, this game will eat them if they don't play. They're in it. They're in the pit, and the dragon is real, and they have to fight the dragon. So by the threat of losing their lives, they begin to play. And particularly once they learn there are only a few do-overs because once they realize like these marks on their arms are their lives, they see one disappear and understand that, oh, I only get three tries. So there's, there's mercy in the game, but only three, three lives, three um, attempts at this thing. So you have some mercy. You, you don't, it's not just a one and done. It's triple elimination, put it that way. Uh, they have three lives before they're stuck there forever or just dead and gone completely. So second, the first thing is they have to believe the game is real. The second is they have to, they need to work together to be saved. So they have to get over their isolated selves of the high school world, the self-absorption. And this is a major turning point in the movie where instead of trying to dominate each other, they submit to one another. And this is where they stop hating each other and through this, um, through this struggle, they start to slowly love one another because why? Well, they need each other. They find that, um, they can't do this alone. So there's, there's the, there's their self. They have to recognize the, their own weaknesses, but they have to recognize the strengths in others. So that's the second part. The third thing is something beyond their own willpower and skills is needed. Um, there's something beyond their cooperation. So even as a group, they cannot leave the game without some mysterious force to grant them their exit. And this is one of the things that is, is curious because there is like a, um, a, a game obviously has a creator and the creator is not in the game. So people often take this with comparisons for God with like, uh, say, um, Harry Potter. If you read that book, you don't find JK Rowling in the book. She's not, she's outside of the book. Um, same with any author. You can use that, that analogy. The, the creator does not, uh, walk into the book unless you're reading some like modern postmodern uh, kind of book where the author is in the book with the characters. So, uh, but generally the great works of art are written. They create a world like Tolkien with the Lord of the Rings. He's not in the book. There's no Gandalf runs into J.R.R. Tolkien. That doesn't happen. So, um, Gandalf's never going to find him in the book either. So there's the same with Jumanji that they have to realize that there's something beyond their own willpower and skills. 
So Jumanji is not only about self-discovery of flaws, it's not only about loving one another. The key element that is less obvious is that there is a mystery here. There is something higher and unexplained in the movie. Um, even when they are able to restore the jewel in the very final scene into the sacred mountain, they can't save themselves. In fact, it's not even really clear how the magic works that brought them into the game. There is something else at work. So they have to they have to perform all these heroic actions to escape. So they have to use their their willpower and skill and their make decisions like free will. They have to perform actions to get to the mountain. But more importantly, they must believe that the actions will save them, that the steps they follow will return them to their high school real world lives. They cannot get out of this hell without some kind of faith in whatever created this game in this rules of the game kind of thing. They must believe in some power that is never fully known or shown in the movie. In fact, that's us as viewers. We, we believe that there's like some thing they must uh, appeal to in the game in order to escape so that they can magically return out of it into this world. So they must truly believe that they cannot reach home again unless they get a sacred jewel to a religious shrine on a mountain. And once this, once this jewel is in its rightful place, its proper place, everything's ordered, then they have to shout a sacred word, which is the name of the movie, Jumanji. And they have to believe it. They have to do it. And only then will they be saved and, and pulled out of the game. So the game is the same as life. And we cannot be our own saviors, neither by ourselves nor in a group. There must be something higher to save us. Uh, but we'll never know that unless we experience this kind of suffering. Um, and without pain, we never see the way. Uh, we never understand the problem. We don't understand our weakness. We don't see our flaw. And so none. let's go back to Jesus with Nicodemus. What does he tell him in that, in that, that secret night meeting? He says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So, this statement could be swapped with uh, fiery snakes and because in the desert, God sent the fiery snakes and ex explicitly says that God sent the snakes to bite the people to cause them to suffer. And why, why did he do that? Why? Well, because otherwise they would never understand that their imagined strength was their biggest weakness. So they must be weak and know it in their bones in order to believe, in order to escape the pain. This is what's really hard to accept today, but it was just as hard to accept back then or even in Jumanji. So God sent these snakes to the Israelites, which seems kind of cruel, but then he tried a more direct method with us. And that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. God is saying he came down here himself, not to bite us this time, but to show us. He came to save us. So the painful snake bite method worked, but we so quickly forgot that he had, he had to keep sending signs and prophets and we keep ignoring, you know, uh, all these things. And, and we fail to understand. Uh, he tried, God tried telling us through various efforts and signs and the snakes in the desert. Uh, that was just one of his attempts to reach us. But we always choose to reject him as soon as things settle down. So the fear model, it works, but it's not that effective for the long term. So 
um, that's why when Jesus comes, it's a very different approach. But the plan all along was love. He showed us the way and it was intended to reach everyone on earth. He sent his son to show love and mercy and um, to tell us, you know, to follow the commandments. Um, so instead of him biting us, like he allowed us to bite him, you could say, uh, and bite we did. So he came to us in love in the form of Jesus, uh, like the loving father running out to meet the prodigal son. He comes to meet us. He comes to meet us. Um, and we learned that it's far easier to understand this message through seeing Jesus on the cross than through, than through trying to understand snake bites in the desert. But instead of embracing God when he came to us, like an angry mob, we arrested and tortured and killed him, only to realize that whether he sends snakes to bite us or we bite at him, God loses no power. He cannot be defeated. He's out. He's he's even after we killed him, he, he rises. So it doesn't matter. Like, um, but whether he is the biter through the form of snakes or, or he's the one bitten in either direction, God is always the healer, the redeemer, the savior, and the answer to everything we are searching for. And we'll go on a little bit more about that in part two here. Um, thanks for listening and we'll see you soon.